Holy moly. All right, let's give a hand for these guys. Hey, I told you, my goal is that by the end of this little mini-series, that would be song-bombed in your mind forever. There is a point to that, by the way, too, but we are going to play that every week for the next three weeks after this week, even. A uh, couple preliminary thoughts before we kind of get going tonight. First of all, thank you, band. Weston, thanks for leading us uh, in some praise. That was great. Secondly, Josh is fired. And thirdly, um, not just from announcements from the... No, just kidding. Um, Thirdly, though, I just wanted to give praise. Marge's surgery went uh, well, according to her. Heart surgery, it's a big deal. Mayo Clinic. And so uh, great praise to our God for that as well. I guess now moving, though, to a tragedy. Um, this past week, a guy named Hayden Kennedy and Inge Perkins, both were in their mid-20s, were caught in an avalanche just outside of Bozeman here. And Inge was completely buried and was killed. Hayden was only half buried and he was able to escape. Uh, the next day he killed himself. I don't know if you've read this yet or not. Our thoughts and prayers go out to their families in the midst of this tragedy. Hayden was actually a, a world-renowned climber. Uh, he had a resume that far outdid his age. And he had just climbed a new route uh, to K7, I believe, is one of the bigger peaks over in Pakistan. However, what was so intriguing to me in reading up on this was something that Hayden wrote just a few weeks ago. Actually, uh, ironically, really, a few of his friends had just died in hiking accidents. And he wrote to a blog and he said this. He said, it's not just the memorable summits and the crux moves that are fleeting. Friends and climbing partners are fleeting too. This is the painful reality of our sport and I'm unsure what to make of it. Coming from someone who was on top of the world, both literally and figuratively, um, there's a more truth to this than I think he even knew. Life, friends, is fleeting. It is fleeting. This is the same term that Solomon has been using. We've been studying Ecclesiastes. He's using this word fleeting or vanity. And as he sought out life and satisfaction, he constantly made similar assertions. He did so, though, in all areas of life. He would pursue an area of life and realize, wow, this is fleeting. This is somewhat empty. If you want to turn there to Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 1, you may recall, uh, it's his observations of nature, of cycles, of creation, etc. And the conclusion is that there's no satisfaction to be found from nature itself. Now, chapter 2 begins his personal experiment with not nature, but now with pleasure at a personal level. He's experimenting to find satisfaction in pleasure. Within the scope then of this pursuit of pleasure and happiness, there's essentially five idols that we're looking at, five uh, really idols that can grip us even today. And so that's why I think this is so applicable for us now here in our college years. Last week, what was the idol? It was the idol of fun, the idol of entertainment. And now this week, we get to take on the next idol, which is that of alcohol or drunkenness or really specifically substances, or more generally, I should say, substances as a whole. Now, just to kind of get uh, you more interested, I think some statistics would be helpful. Did you know that 33% of high school students drink alcohol on a monthly basis? So one-third of all high school students. 18% of those drink on or binge drink on a monthly basis. Of all the alcohol that is consumed in the U.S. in a given year, 
11% is consumed by underage drinkers. More than 90% of alcohol that is consumed is binge drinking, which means excessive or continuous drinking. By the time you get to college, 80% of the student body drinks alcohol and 50% admitted to binge drinking within the past two weeks. Now, as a consequence, 696,000 college-age students experience some form of assault from a person who's been drinking. 97,000 college-age students, and this is in one year, experience some form of sexually related assault or rape. That's 97,000. And 1,825 college-age students, just this age, were injured or died as a consequence of drinking. I think we can all agree this is a relevant issue for the world and the stage of life that we are in. And I won't make you raise your hand, but let's ask a few questions to continue to drive home the relevance of this topic and maybe the pertinence in your life. Do you have a friend, a family member, perhaps even a parent who struggles with alcohol use and abuse? Maybe you yourself have a past that involves heavy alcohol consumption and a lifestyle of drunkenness. Maybe you are here tonight in the midst of a battle with a substance that has some form of control over you, whether it's alcohol or something else. Or maybe you're just here tonight and you may know someone who's addicted to a substance, alcohol or drugs, whatever it may be, and you want to help them. Well, tonight we're not going to give you a 12-step program to give freedom from addiction, Uh, my hope is to do even better. I want to uh, go beyond uh, counseling. I think there's a place for counseling. There's a place for help programs. There's a place for that. But I want to get a little bit beyond this. What we're going to do tonight is look at the big, big picture. Can alcohol actually bring value in your life? Can it bring happiness in your life? Can it bring satisfaction? Can it bring joy that will last? I think you know the answer, but I want to continue to prove this to you. We get to see this from God. That's exciting, isn't it? God's word speaks to this issue here and now. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I'll start again in verse 1. Remember Solomon, he's speaking here. Solomon says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. Of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. Now, as we come again to this passage Solomon is looking for happiness. He's looking for joy. He's asking the question, how can I be happy? And God has recorded this passage for our benefit. Again, Romans 15, 4, these things are recorded for our example. And so this, friends, is as alive today and as inspired today as it was the day it was written. This text is for us here and now. Solomon is doing the test now with alcohol. He had these thoughts and desires. He saw alcohol as a form of pleasure. Therefore, he pursued it to its end. And the first phrase that you see in in verse 3, just looking at a little bit of detail now, is he says, I explored with my mind. Remember, friends, Solomon is no dummy, right? He's no dummy. This is the smartest, the wisest human, natural-born human, who has ever lived. And so Solomon is going to pursue this, but he's not going to do it just flippantly. He's not going to do it haphazardly. 
Don't picture in your mind a redneck grabbing a six-pack and going out to the boondocks to get drunk. Okay? Solomon is genuinely searching for satisfaction from a substance. He wants to know, can this do it? If I pursue this day after day, can this make me happy? And so he says he wanted to stimulate his body with wine. Or the idea is, is to cheer himself with alcohol. This is further indicated by the phrase, until I could see what good there is. He wants to experimentally pursue the most amount of exciting feelings or emotional buzz or ultimate laughter and happiness that he can. And so he says, he's seeking out to see what good there is for sons of men to do under heaven. He's looking for what is good in life, okay? And you can see that from the text. He's looking for what is good for mankind, and in this scenario, he's doing it with alcohol. Now, what's interesting is that the prophet Micah tells us what's good for man. You might know this verse. He says, God has told you, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but, and here you go, you know this verse, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. This is what is good for man to do under heaven, and yet how did Solomon miss it here? He somehow missed this altogether, being the wisest man, and he pursues idol after idol. How did he get it so wrong? Well, I think verse 3 continues to give us this clue. Again, he says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind is guiding me, and how to take hold of folly. He's pursuing after foolishness. He's pursuing after a state of laughter and folly. In other words, the idea of this word here is senseless behavior. Again, verse 1 tells us this too. He's pursuing pleasure. He's pursuing laughter. And that's the goal from the outset. And I think just to help us understand this as an analogy, it would be like looking for a single blade of grass in a football stadium, and yet you're not even in the right state. Right? In other words, the arena in which he is searching for satisfaction is altogether the wrong area. He's going to foolishness and folly and laughter and pleasure as the area in which he's trying to find satisfaction from, and he's not even close. He's not even in the right stadium. So he will search and he'll search and he'll search and yet he will never find it. And I mentioned this, I implied this earlier, but I think because of the cultural differences between then and today, I'm thoroughly convinced that this principle extends to all substances that can be used and abused. Any substance that can, that can be sought after for satisfaction is in view here. When he says wine, that was their form of alcohol in the day. But by him saying, I explored with my mind while it's guiding me wisely how to stimulate myself, this, this is the idea. He's pursuing pleasure in a substance. He's pursuing pleasure in a substance. So, does this apply to us today? <laughs> what do you think? Is Solomon right when he says there's nothing new under the sun? Do people search for satisfaction in a substance in 21st century America? In Bozeman, Montana? At Montana State? Even right here? I'm convinced, friends, this might be the most relevant idol that we're going to look at. So, we owe our attention to this. From one strong drink to the next, from one cigar to the next, from one drug to the next, this is the average life of a college student. Right? If you're not doing that, you are in the minority. And I don't doubt that some of us here are struggling with that even now. 
What's sad about this scenario, though, is that it's all about you. It's all about your own individual selfish pleasure. And I'm not saying this judgmentally. I'm just observing facts. When we indulge in a substance, it's all about me, is it not? I'm looking for a certain feeling from it. And at the end of the day, all we've done is we've spent money. We've lost control. You've made poor decisions because of your loss of self-control. And most importantly, you've sinned against God. If you're searching for satisfaction in a bottle, let me tell you, friends, you are never going to find it. And yes, I'm even speaking to Christians. If you're searching for satisfaction in a bottle, you will never find it. Solomon says, this too is futility. It's vanity. It's fleeting. So that's basically the passage. There's not a whole lot here in terms of uh, complicated details we need to pull out. We see what he's doing. He's going after fun and entertainment. Now he's going after uh, drunkenness, really, or alcohol or a substance. Uh, What I want to do, though, is I want to launch out into the rest of Scripture, and I want to think with you tonight about the topic of drunkenness and even about the topic of alcohol. So what I want to do is prove to you why drunkenness won't satisfy you and, consequently, why it will ruin your life. So, point number one, why this won't satisfy is because you'll always want more. All right, this is a pretty observable, I think we all agree with that. You'll always want more. Just ask someone who gets drunk a lot. Are they satisfied after getting drunk one time in their life for the rest of their lives? Has that just really done it? They found the key and now they can just coast. No. What they have to do is do it over and over and over. And consequently, God has made our bodies so that our sensitivities to these things go down. So can you just do the same amount? No, you have to go up and up and up. This is why a lot of heroin addicts die, right? Because you want a higher and higher dosage. Drunkenness cannot keep you happy and joyful because it doesn't last. It's fleeting. We're talking about a matter of hours, And so it begins a never-ending cycle of chasing this happiness, chasing this satisfaction day after day, week after week, year after year. Alcohol doesn't offer lasting satisfaction because it's temporary and it fades. That's point number one. Point number two, though, it won't satisfy and it will ruin your life because God says drunkenness is sin. And I want to camp here for a moment. Turn to the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 5. Again, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians, then Ephesians, chapter 5. And I want to draw your attention to what I think is the most clear, straightforward verse on the topic of drunkenness. In case your conscience is uninformed that drunkenness is a sin, Ephesians 5, 18 leaves no excuse. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Again, this is a command from the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Believe it or not, friends, drunkenness was an issue even in Jesus' day. Uh, There was sexual immorality, there was lying, there was all the same things we struggle with, and wouldn't you know it, drunkenness was an issue too. And so the Holy Spirit superintended that this passage would be recorded for the ages, speaking directly into this topic. Drunkenness is dissipation, is what the text says. Now, this word dissipation, I don't know what your translation says, but it's the Greek word asotia, and it can be translated as debauchery, but what it literally means is reckless abandon. 
He says, for that is, if you get drunk with wine, that is reckless abandon. The idea here is that if you are drunk, you have recklessly abandoned your body. You have recklessly abandoned your mind, and you have given over your self-control. And friends, that is sin. Now look at its counterpart. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, why do I say that's the counterpart? Well, this is the idea. When you're drunk, you give yourself over to the control of a substance. On the contrary, what are children of God to do? Well, they're to give their control over to the Spirit of God. And so it's a a direct contrast here. You cannot be controlled with the Spirit when you are controlled by a substance. Does that make sense? This is what this text is getting at. So rather than giving alcohol uh, influence, which I think simply what alcohol does is it removes your conscience, it removes your ability to judge and discern, and what comes out at that point? Your sinful flesh. Your sinful flesh runs rampant. It does exactly what it wants to do with no restraints. He says, rather than that, you should be filled with the Spirit. Essentially, the question is, who are you surrendering to? Or what are you surrendering to? Now, there's several other passages, though, that continue to build this case. One book to your left in Galatians chapter 5. This records the fruits of the Spirit, which really talks about what a Christian should be like. Fruits of the Spirit. Uh, And in the contrast, you have the deeds of the flesh. Fruits of the Spirit are in verse 21. One of them, if you look at verse 23, is self-control. But in verse 20, or in verse 19, you have the deeds of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, which is the word pharmakia, which is where we get this idea of drug use, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, and drunkenness. So this is a deed of the flesh, in, in, in exact opposite of a fruit of the Spirit. A deed of the flesh is drunkenness. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 6 lists a, uh, a listing of sins, and it says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. One of those sins is drunkenness. In other words, if you are characteristically a drunk, uh, there's no evidence in your life that you're a believer. Why? Because believers are filled with the Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 6 says... That person does not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's qualifications of an elder. But really what 1 Timothy 3 is, is qualities of a mature Christian. If you want to be a mature Christian, spend time in 1 Timothy 3. And in verse 3, it says, not addicted to wine. In other words, friends, you cannot be a mature Christian if you are addicted to wine. And really, I think the idea of the text there is lingering long beside wine. Proverbs 20 adds that wine is a mocker and whoever is deceived by strong drink is not wise. And so, again, these are just a few passages building the case of what God thinks about drunkenness. It's not good. Drunkenness is explicitly, clearly a sin. Don't let someone tell you otherwise. You've seen it for yourself. And therefore, and again, remember what we're arguing here, this is why drunkenness cannot satisfy you. This is why drunkenness will ultimately ruin your life. Is God going to allow us to receive satisfaction from something that is sin? Absolutely not. We can only receive true satisfaction from him. Therefore, I'm just, again, building this case in your minds. Drunkenness will not satisfy. The third point, and I think this is, again, worth stopping and considering, why drunkenness can't satisfy, and you can see it on your handout. The third point is because drunkenness leads to other sins. 
man, this was kind of fun in a weird way for me to think through. Um, it, just thinking about where does the Bible connect drunkenness with other sins? Because we see it in society, do we not? You see drunkenness leads to other sins. I wanted to look, does the Bible talk about other sins? And I think it does. I think it does. Aside from all the health concerns that come from drunkenness, uh, and there's a whole list of them I have here, uh, the first sin that drunkenness leads to is the sin of losing your self-control. Right? I already talked about that a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5. It's dissipation or reckless abandon when you're drunk. But Scripture says a lot of other, uh, has a lot of other things to say about self-control as well. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is describing the last days. And he says this. He says, realize this. In the last days, which by the way are these days, after Christ's resurrection, his death and his ascension, In the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. Without self-control. And so I think this passage is making the case that if you don't have self-control, it goes on to say they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. A person with no self-control is a person who is not controlled by the Spirit. Again, not a believer. So drunkenness leads to self-control, and self-control, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, is a sin. It's characteristic of a lover of self And uh, again, making this case further in your minds, Galatians chapter 5, within that list of deeds of the flesh, in verse 23, you have self-control being a deed of the flesh. Again, characteristic of an unbeliever. Here's the thing. Self-control is a virtue that God desires and cultivates in the child of God. And yet at the same time, this is impossible when you are drunk, when you've given over your influence to what I would argue, demonic influences even. When a person gives themselves over to the control of a substance, they have opened themselves up to any other form of influence. Now, we mentioned the conscience. You may recall we talked about the conscience back in August. The conscience is this thing that God has given us to inform us of right and wrong, to remind us of what is true, what is moral, and... uh, when you become drunk, or when you become buzzed, or when you give yourself over to the influence of a substance, what you essentially do is you take the conscience and you kill it. You subdue the conscience, you remove it from the scene, and again, I'm just making this case, right? Why is self-control important? Well, because that's the only way that God has given us to make good decisions. When you subdue and kill the conscience, you no longer have any mechanism to discern what is good and what is not. And that's why I think self-control then, when you give up self-control, it leads to a host of other sins. Friends, think with me. What kind of stupid things do people do when they're drunk? I mean, we could just multiply examples, could we not? I heard of a story this week, and it didn't happen this week, but of a man who went and stood in a railroad track as a train was coming and looked at his friends and said, I'm going to stop this train. And he held up his fist at the train. He was drunk, right? He was drunk. I've seen people run around with no clothes on doing the most ridiculous things. Just live in the freshman dorms at MSU for a year, and you will see things you wish you wouldn't have, 
right? People wandering down the halls into their neighbor's room. They don't even know their neighbor. They wander around. Sometimes they lay down, fall asleep. Sometimes they get rid of excess water in a person's closet. That was one story that happened when I was a freshman. Uh, Actually, personally, uh, really hitting home, I left my dorm for a weekend and came back after the weekend to crawl into my bed and find it completely soaked. So I turned to my roommate and I said, dude, why is my bed soaked? And he said, oh man, I am so sorry. We had this big party and, uh, and I was a believer at the time. I wasn't doing that, but he was. And he said, we had this big party and we came back here and I just let this guy crash on your bed. And oh man, I'm so sorry. He must have wet your bed. I had just crawled into this bed. Unbelievable. All the way through the mattress, all the way through the mattress pad onto the loft just totally totally ruined. Friends, do you see the stupidness, the folly, the foolishness of what happens when people are drunk? Right? You know. You know. You can multiply examples in your own, uh, hopefully not personally, although maybe for some of us that's true. But nonetheless, we see the foolishness of drunkenness. Now here's the next thing that it leads to. You get drunk and your conscience is uh, seared or it's subdued, it's done away with, and now you've opened yourself up to all sinful impulses. So you've lost self-control. That's another sin. What's sadly one of the next things that often happens when people are drunk? Well, it's sexual immorality. And this might be the most destructive of follow-up sins. Did you know that 90% of first-time encounters that led to sex were preceded by alcohol? 90% of first-time encounters that led to sex were preceded by alcohol. We're going to talk about this idol in a few weeks, so I'll leave it there. But let me just say this. When you begin playing with a little flame, you can end up making a decision that you'll regret for the rest of your lives. God has given sex as a gift to be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage, to be exercised between one man and one woman, and yet when a person becomes drunk, even if they believe this, it goes out. It leaves. Your judgment is gone. So drunkenness leads to sexual immorality. Next, what else does drunkenness lead to? Well, Proverbs 20 verse 1 says that wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. And the verse or the phrase I want to hone in on is this idea of it being a mocker and a brawler. I think the next sin is aggression. Aggression. When you're drunk, you get overly aggressive, right? It produces a mocking temperament, a brawling temperament. And overall, it's not wise to be intoxicated by them because it leads you to being an idiot, essentially. And we've all seen this, right? Movies make fun of guys who are drunk and, oh, let me at him. And one guy's sober, one guy's drunk, and the guy swings and misses and he just kind of moves and he swings again and he ends up just pushing him down. Right, you know the scene. This is reality, though. If you've been around someone who's drunk, sometimes they get overly aggressive. And here's why I think this is. Again, your filter is gone, and what comes out in your sinful heart when your conscience and your filter is gone is a whole lot of pride. And so if anyone even looks like they're challenging you, anyone looks like they're questioning you, anyone looks like uh, they're maybe challenging that you're top dog, and I'm specifically talking to guys here, then what do you want to do? Oh, you're challenging me? I want to fight you. Right? Never in your right mind would you consider fighting someone. And yet, Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Mine is a, walk, is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler. There's no filter, friends. And so sin after sin after sin begin to come out when you give yourself over to drunkenness. 
again, being in college, it's not an uncommon thing, right? To see people at parties getting drunk, and what happens? They show up the next day at class or the next week at class, and they've got a black eye, or they've got a fat lip. Fighting, aggression, anger, these things follow. Turn back to 1 Timothy 3. We're doing a little bit of hopping around here. After Ephesians, if that's where you're still at, after the Thessalonians, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to look at, again at these elder qualifications, again, these uh, signs of a mature Christian. And in verse 3, I already read to you, not addicted to wine, but look at the very next phrase. And it's, it's within one uh, sentence or one um, clause here. It's not addicted to wine or pugnacious. Hmm, interesting. Why would he put addicted to wine and pugnacious back to back, joined by the conjunction or? Well, what's the word pugnacious mean? We've got to figure that out first. Pugnacious is simply to be violent or even to be a bully. Again, it's this aggressive, violent behavior that's really representative of Satan and his demons more so than Christ. No wonder an elder can't be pugnacious. Here's the idea then. Drunkenness often leads to fighting. It leads to brawling. It leads to quarreling. It leads to verbal and physical abuse. These things cannot be true of an elder, and yet drunkenness, it opens up the whole gamut. You're probably going to see all of these things, brawling, quarreling, verbal and physical abuse. Or at least you often do. And so I think we could go on and on and on, but drunkenness leads to aggression and anger as well. One last one, and this one is maybe the saddest, at least at a personal level. It leads to self-destruction. It leads to self-destruction. Flip back to Proverbs. If you go to the middle of your Bible, right after Psalms, Proverbs chapter 23. I'm just showing you from the Bible how drunkenness is often affiliated with other sins. Right, all within the context of showing you why drunkenness can't satisfy, why it's going to ruin your life, aside from all the physical issues that we could talk about. Proverbs chapter 23, I'm just going to read this, starting in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Answer? Verse 30, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill or injured. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Again, friends, how many injuries? How many injuries? How many, unfortunately, fatalities occur because of drunkenness? This passage refers to wounds without cause, redness of eyes. Your eyes see strange things. In other words, hallucinations. It talks about one who lies on top of a mast. In other words, this is the guy who climbs up on top of a very dangerous point and one misstep, he falls to his death. This is a common scene among drunken parties. Uh, They struck me, but I did not become ill. Or again, better translated, I did not feel pain. They beat me, but I didn't even know it. Dear friends, this passage 
inspired by God, is warning us of the self-destructive nature of drunkenness. Do you think God cares about this issue? Look at how many other sins are affiliated with drunkenness in the Bible. God is trying to communicate here that drunkenness will lead to self-destruction. And ultimately, in the whole of the Bible, I believe he's trying to communicate that drunkenness will ruin your life. Okay, put the whole believer-unbeliever thing aside. Just a wisdom thing, even if a person's an unbeliever, drunkenness will ruin your life. It really will. It will ruin your life. And so, as Christians, do we have any business getting drunk? No. It's a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And it will ruin your life. We've seen three reasons now. I want to kind of transition seen three reasons why it won't satisfy, why it will ruin your life. And I think all these reasons applied in Solomon's life as well, by the way. You, who wrote Proverbs? Oh yeah, Solomon. So Solomon had the wisdom to look back as he's writing this and understand, man, drunkenness is, it's a sin. That's why it's not going to satisfy. I'm always going to want more because it leads to other sins. I think Solomon had a grip on this. Yeah, there's one more question I think we need to wrestle through. We're just kind of doing a little topical talk. We're looking at Solomon's sin. We're looking at drunkenness. I want to wrestle with this question with you tonight. How should the Christian think through drinking? And I'm talking about now drinking that doesn't lead to drunkenness. Casual drinking. How should the Christian think about drinking in general? Does God's word say anything just about drinking? I think it's clear from God's word that drunkenness is a sin. But what about drinking as a whole. And I just want to leave you with really two principles to think about as we leave tonight. Principles to thinking through drinking. And to do so, we need to turn to 1 Corinthians 8. So if you've tuned out thus far, I think this is uh, maybe the most pertinent aspect of our evening. How should the Christian think through drinking? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read this whole chapter. Verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But, all, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning, sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. 
Okay, Matt, I thought you said this talked about drinking. What in the world is going on here? Well, let me explain a little bit of the cultural setting, and I think it's going to help us. In this day, both Greeks and Romans were polytheistic, meaning that they had multiple false gods that they worshipped, and they also believed in multiple demons. And they believed that evil spirits would try to invade humans by attaching themselves to meat before you ate it, and then when you ate the meat, the demon would enter your body. Again, these are pagan religions. The only way to remove this demon then was to sacrifice the food to a god beforehand. Then the food could be cleansed. This decontaminated the meat by offering it as a burnt offering. And so part of it was offered as a burnt offering to the gods. And what was left was taken back to eat. And then what was left over from this pagan feast was taken to the market and sold. So this is all what's in the mind of Paul as he's writing into the Corinthian church. Which, by the way, did did the Corinthian church have problems? Oh my goodness, yes, this should not be surprising to us that this was going on. So this is the Corinthian church. All this is in Paul's mind as he's writing chapter 8. There were Christians in the Corinthian church who had been saved out of a previously demonic lifestyle. Okay, They're in this pagan religion. They're saved out of it. And yet, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols was hard for them. Well, why was it hard for them? Well, it was hard for them because their consciences reminded them of their previous lifestyle. Okay? So they've got this reminder now of how they used to be. This demonic, pagan, false religion, and then seeing and eating a meat sacrificed to an idol reminded them of that. This is what's in in store here with this idea of the conscience. Now, let's again return to chapter 8. Paul is reasoning, if you remember, that an idol is nothing, therefore meat sacrificed to an idol is fine to eat. Why? Because, well, meat sacrificed to an idol is meat sacrificed to nothing. So let's just eat the meat, right? Those who have, you might argue, a more mature perspective, that's how they view it. However, he goes on to say that those Christians who are more mature in this matter need to be careful not to ruin the conscience of the Christian who is weaker in this matter. In other words, if a Christian has a hard time with you eating meat sacrificed to an idol, then you need to honor that brother or sister by not eating meat sacrificed to an idol. And the seriousness of this, in verse 12, he says, this is, if you sin against a brother in this way, this is sin against who? This is sin against Christ even. So Christ cares about how each member of his body is doing spiritually. And when one member is reckless with the consciences and really the faith of another member, this is sin against Christ. Okay, well, let's draw some connection points now. Let's connect the dots. How does this apply to drinking? Friends, in the same way, those who are mature and know what the scriptures say, understand that alcohol in and of itself is not bad. I think there's some Christians who think all alcohol is bad no matter what. Well, that's actually not the case. The Bible condemns drunkenness. So there's kind of a level of maturity from there to here where you understand all the Bible condemns is drunkenness. However, this is exciting. There's a principle that absolutely must be considered before consuming alcohol that comes out of this chapter. And are you ready? I'm going to put it in a very succinct, memorable form. Principle number one, when we're thinking about drinking, is this. Consider the weaker Christian. Consider the weaker Christian. Look at verse 9 again. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
Okay, Paul is using a specific example from their context, their culture in chapter 8 of meat sacrifice to idols to teach, I believe, a principle that expands to all of Christianity. What's the principle? Consider the weaker Christian. Let me just give an example of this, maybe to flesh this out a little bit. How would this apply to drinking alcohol? You are in a public place, and you are having a beer, an alcoholic beverage, and a person walks in, and they sit at your table, or they come and say hi to you and notice this. Here's where this gets dangerous, friends. You have no idea what this person's past is like, what this person's conscience is like. You don't know if they were raised in an abusive home where alcohol was the agent by which this was all happening, and therefore their conscience is really sensitive to alcohol. You don't know if this person was saved out of a lifestyle of drunkenness, and therefore being around alcohol causes their conscience to be damaged. I mean, this is a serious warning here. It says in verse 11 that you might ruin your brother. Did you know that one out of seven people that drink alcohol become alcoholics? One out of seven people that touch alcohol become alcoholics. I think there's a serious principle here that we need to consider and consider closely. This text is telling us we need to be very careful not to be a stumbling block to those Christians with a weaker conscience. And I think verse 13 summarizes it. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, Paul's not saying that he never did eat meat again, but he's saying he's aware of every setting that he's in so as to not cause anyone to stumble. Now, for the second principle, you don't have to go far. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9, I just want to give you a brief survey real quick on this. The theme of chapter 9 really is the gospel. The, the term gospel occurs nine times. And it's interesting that he moves from chapter 8 discussing idols, right, and being willing to consider a weaker Christian. Now to chapter 9, he's going to discuss our freedoms. Makes sense, right? He's going to discuss our freedoms. And some Christians will use chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians to justify their Christian liberty which basically acts as a green card to do whatever you want in the name of Christian liberty. So Christians will say, hey, we've got freedom in Christ, therefore I'm going to go indulge in this. I hope that we can fix that here in the next five minutes. Uh, look at verse 4. Paul is mentioning several freedoms and rights that he has. Verse 4, do we not have a right to eat and drink? And I think context is he can eat meat, he can drink uh, things that were maybe you know, falsely given to idols. And though he had this right, what we'll see is that he gave it up. Verse 5, do I not have a right, or do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So he has a right to marriage. And yet I think 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that Paul was better off not to marry for the sake of the gospel. Again, he's giving up these things for the sake of the gospel. Verse 6, he argues uh, regarding vocational ministry. Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? In other words, pastors, those given to full-time vocational ministry, have a right not to have to work a secular job because they are giving themselves fully to the work of the ministry. And then the following verses give examples of that. Look at verse 8. Or sorry, verse 7. He says, A soldier doesn't serve at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? In other words, hey, even God says this is good. God has, says, has said, don't muzzle the ox, which Paul understands to mean 
pay the pastor, pay the full-time minister. So he even has God's support and textual evidence on this note, and yet, look at verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So Paul even gives up his right to be paid by the people whom he's feeding their souls for the sake of the gospel so that they would have no no foothold to accuse him, to object to him, no uh, reproach on his life. This is what he's doing. He's showing all of his rights, all of his freedoms, and he's saying, but I've given these up for the sake of the gospel. Verse 15, I think summarizes it, but I have used none of these things. I'm not writing these things so that I will... So that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Following this, I think he moves then from big picture sacrifices now to the daily ins and outs. And here's where a lot of Christians go wrong. Follow along in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I become as a Jew, so that I may win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Friends, why is Paul doing what he's doing here? I think this is the passage right here that is misunderstood. Actually, to say the exact opposite of what the text is saying. But what is, why is he doing what he's doing? Well, the word that pops up over and over and over again is the word win. Win, win, win. Paul wants to win people to the Lord. So the second question then is how is he doing this? Is he indulging in a lot of fun stuff? Is he going on extravagant pleasure crusades in order to win people? No. He is actually giving up his freedoms. Things that in the Lord he could do and enjoy, he's giving up for the sake of the gospel. This is the idea of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. It's sacrificing freedoms in order to win some with the gospel. Summarized in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Principle number two then is this. Be willing to sacrifice freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Be willing to sacrifice freedoms. Paul is not just talking about himself for the sake of talking about himself. He's giving us a model. He's giving us a model for how we should think about ministry and specifically how we should think about our freedoms in Christ. The point of 1 Corinthians 8 then is to consider the weaker Christian's conscience and the point of 1 Corinthians 9 is to be willing to sacrifice personal freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Now, I'm going to leave this. I'm going to leave it right there. I'm going to leave it between you and the Lord to determine what this looks like. But I do want to admonish you. I want to exhort you not to ignore what we've just seen in God's word. Most of you probably don't struggle with drunkenness. You may. You may have a past of that, and this has been helpful. But these two chapters 
I think is where we need to, to spend some time reflecting. How would God have me relate to drinking? What settings am I comfortable drinking in, if any? And that's my prayer. Will you bow with me? Before we pray, I just want to remind us of what God has saved us from. If you're a Christian here tonight, God has redeemed you. He's transformed your life. Maybe you come from a lifestyle of complete sinfulness, of indulgence and drunkenness. And if so, praise God. Praise God that he pulled you out of that. Hmm. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home and now you're just having to think through these issues on your own. Well, I think there's enough for us to dwell on here. So I would encourage you, even in just sitting here in the quietness of your own heart, to reflect upon the truths of God's word, to consider the conscience of a weaker Christian, to be willing to sacrifice freedoms, whatever that might look like in your own life. But ultimately, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, that's the most important issue. Drinking aside, uh, that's really a secondary issue compared to the matter of knowing Christ. And so if you don't know him, I would urge you to turn to him Surrender to him. Trust in the Lord. We're seeing from Solomon, there is no satisfaction in any substance. There's no satisfaction in any fun, any entertainment, but there is ultimate, lasting, full satisfaction in Christ Jesus. Oh, what joy. Oh, what pleasure of knowing Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior. Father, this is our prayer. We want to love Christ more. God, we are doing this series in order that we might see the vanity of all that is around us when we try to uh, derive satisfaction from the world apart from you, Lord. And yet, God, we thank you for Christ Jesus, who said, I come to offer eternal life, abundant life, full life, life with joy. Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy. And so we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you give us a way to be right with you. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us humility as we look at our lives and maybe our present beliefs and we bring them, Lord, we bring them humbly to the foot of the cross. We surrender them, Lord. We want Jesus to be Lord of every area of our lives. And so I do just pray that we would think through this with wisdom. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.